Hey there, history fans. Welcome back to the History Explains It All podcast, where we cover a variety of historical topics from the Stone Age to the Modern Age. I'm Lauren. I'm Melissa. In today's episode, we have a special guest with us today. She's back. Say hello again. Hello, I'm back. (laughs) I'm so excited. (laughs) It's me, Casey Jump. I'm back again. I'm so honored that you guys have me back on for another wonderful episode and the continuation of our little series. Oh, welcome back. Welcome back. Today's topic is the conclusion of this series on Shakespeare. And today we'll be talking about Shakespeare, his playwrights, and conspiracy theories. Like a good conspiracy theory. It's going to be a blast. I'm so excited. (laughs) You can't go wrong with conspiracy theories. I mean, they're just so much fun. Come on. They are. They're delicious. (laughs) (laughs) You're making fun of me. (laughs) First you did tea. (laughs) And now they're delicious. In a good mood, I'm excited. This is the. I know. I think I, it's not making fun of you. I think it's adorable. Oh, thank you. I'm just so extra adorable. excited because this was what I pitched to you guys, and this kind of what, this is what grew out of it. All these up wonderful episodes and all this juicy information, and it's been great. So. <laughs> well, juicy's for sure. I mean, we're going to be talking about Shakespeare, his plays, his death, his influence, and all the conspiracy theories about it. I mean, this is going to be a pretty jam-packed episode. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fantastic. Well, if you liked today's episode, please feel free to leave us a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. Please. Please. It helps people find, find us. Shall we say that again in unison, Melissa? <laughs> yeah, I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, yeah, it does help people find us, though. And we appreciate it, and we want your feedback. We can't improve without your feedback, y'all. We'd love to hear what you think. Or if you have any ideas about other episodes that we should do. And where can they send those ideas to? They can send them to historyexplainsall at gmail.com. That's our email, or you can leave a comment in any of our Instagram posts at history explains it all underscore pod podcast. Yeah. Sorry. Had a moment there. <laughs> you, I check those comments all the time. There's also our Facebook page too. Which is the same as our Instagram page. History explains it all underscore podcast. Well, with that, should we get started? Yes. Let's do it. All right, history fans. So in my section, I'm going to be discussing the man, the myth, the legend, William Shakespeare himself. I'm going to be answering questions such as, who is William Shakespeare? What is William Shakespeare known for, for those of you who don't know? William Shakespeare was an English playwright. He was a poet. He's an actor. He was widely regarded as the greatest writer in the English language and the world's greatest dramatist. He wrote during the Elizabethan and Jacobean ages of the British theater, sometimes called the English Renaissance or the early modern period. He's most known for his plays, but he was also a very gifted poet. His poems are still recited today. Shakespeare is also known as the Bard, as in the Bard of Avon. He is often referred to as England's national poet. Though we don't know for sure, 
there's some debate about this. Shakespeare's birthday is believed to be on April 23rd, and that's usually when it's celebrated. According to Wikipedia, however, his birth date is April 26th, and he was born in the year 1564. There are some surviving records of Shakespeare's family. We know that he was born in Stratford-upon-Avon in Warwickshire (laughs) and raised there. His mother was Mary Arden, and his father was John Shakespeare. They had eight children together, and sadly, two daughters were lost in infancy who were the eldest of the Shakespearean children, which then in turn made William the eldest of the six remaining children. Will's father, John, had started out as a glove maker. While he remained a glove maker, he was able to rise in status by some of his involvement in some local civic positions in town. This allowed him to be able to afford to send his children to a local grammar school, which is a pretty big deal. He lived with his family at Henley House, as it was named, until 18 years old when he married Anne Hathaway. Anne was actually Shakespeare Sr. She was 26 years old at the time when he was 18. They had three children together, Susanna, who was born six months after he wed Anne, and then twins, Hamnet and Judith, who were the second and third children. Tragically, however, Hamnet died at 11 years old. We know that Shakespeare started his career sometime within 1585 to 1592. We also know that his twins were baptized in 1585 and that he left his family in Avon to head to London. Then his career in London was flourishing by 1592 as he, he was an actor, then turned a playwright and poet. We don't have any information, however, on the years from 1585 to 1592. We discussed this a little bit in the last podcast. These, were, these unknown years have become known as the lost years. Will's first known published works were Venus and Adonis in 1593 and The Rape of Luchery in 1594, and both of these were rather long poems. Shakespeare's most famous and well-known works were produced from 1589 to 1613. Early on in his career, he wrote more comedies and histories. Then later, he switched his focus to mainly tragedies until 1608, And these included such revered works as Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, Macbeth, King Lear, etc. Shakespeare also helped to found the Lord Chamberlain's Men, a company of actors. And with them, he, he produced on average two plays per year for nearly 20 years. The Lord Chamberlain's Men evolved into the King's Men when King James had ascended the throne in 1603. In 1597, his success and his wealth allowed Shakespeare the opportunity to purchase a house, and he purchased the largest house in Stratford, which he called New Place. So how many plays and poems did Shakespeare write? It is believed that he penned 39 plays, 154 sonnets, two narrative poems, more poems on top of that, and then partook in some collaborations with other writers. Now, how do we know this? It is true that there are no existing surviving manuscripts of Shakespeare's plays today, but it is thanks to a large group of actors and friends of Shakespeare and Shakespeare's company that we know of just half of the plays 
that Will actually wrote. These were these incredible actors had actually compiled and collected Shakespeare's works for publication after he died, which preserved them for us today. And these 36 plays became known as the first folio. In a poem by Ben Jonson, who was another famous playwright at the time and who knew who knew Shakespeare, he wrote that the works of Shakespeare were not of an age, but for all time which is the perfect tribute and so true. His works have truly stood the test of time. I mean, come on. His works have been translated in every major language on the planet and his work is still performed today, more so than any other playwright before or since really, if you think about it. Shakespeare then retired in 1613 and this was at the age of 49 years old. Upon retiring, he returned to Stratford-upon-Avon, and Shakespeare's death came three years later after his retirement, and it is believed to have been on his birthday in 1616. Sadly, however, there are not many records of Shakespeare's private life that survive today, and this has caused much controversy. So stay tuned for more on that with the conspiracy theories in my next section, but now I'm going to turn it over to Melissa. On to you, Melissa. Thank you, thank you, thank you. All right. Sorry. Tried to get a document to fit in my screen. Here we I go. apologize, I'm kind of losing my voice. The allergies here are horrible. <laughs> it's just hot everywhere and icky. It is. For sure. Hope everyone's doing okay with the heat. Yes. Love. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to go into the legacy of Shakespeare because there is certainly a legacy for sure. Absolutely. I'm so excited. (laughs) Right. So we all know that Shakespeare is very popular now and has been, but Shakespeare was even popular during the time he was alive as well, too very much enjoyed by the people that went and saw his plays enjoyed by his contemporaries enjoyed by the royalty there was an author francis mears in 1598 that actually called him quote the most excellent in regarding to the comedies and the tragedies that were performed and he even performed several times for queen elizabeth the first too which is really huge yes i mean when you're part of the king's Kingsman, I think. Yeah, I mean, you're going to be performing in front of royalty, but when you get to perform in front of Queen Elizabeth, that's some pretty big stuff. Huge. So aside from being a shareholder in the profits for the Globe, he and his company were actually a royal, as we just mentioned, uh, awarded a royal patronage by King James I after the death of Queen Elizabeth, which then made them the Kingsmen. So now that they were, now that they're officially a royal acting troupe which was a big deal back then because that wasn't really a thing. Seven years after his death, as we said, we don't have a lot of, we don't have any physical plays with the Shakespeare's actual handwriting, but some of his friends, particularly John Hemmings and Henry Condell, actually published a compilation of his works, which would be the first folios. And that was published, as I said, seven years after his death. Now, it doesn't include every play of Shakespeare's, we're certain that some are missing, such as Cardinio, but it is considered to be the most complete collection of his work that's available. And at the time, 
there were 750 copies that were printed and there are 233 known to survive. So that's still a fair amount. It's about a third, but it's still a fair amount. And in 2006, one of these copies even sold uh, at 2.8 million pounds, which translates to about 4 million American. Pretty pricey. So although the Puritans took over after the beginning of James I, oh, the Puritans, you guys know where this is going. <laughs> so they took over until the mid-1600s, until after, of course, you have the English Civil War. But Puritans being Puritans, anything fun was banned, banning plays and performances, but this didn't actually stop people from enjoying Shakespeare. So since the time of their debuts in the 1590s and such, they've lasted until now, which is incredible to say the least. It's, it's essentially been, I don't, I don't think that there's any place, how to put this, I think since the time of Shakespeare's plays being debuted, I don't think there's a time in history where there was not a play being performed somewhere. I would say that's a pretty good, pretty good chance of that. I would say that's pretty accurate. So there are, there are several people, uh, there are several people, <laughs> there's so many people that have been influenced by Shakespeare, whether they were in theater or not. So one of them was actually Samuel Johnson, Lauren, <laughs> big fan of Samuel Johnson. And he was actually, during the time he was writing his dictionary in 1755, he actually noted that Shakespeare introduced or even coined up to possibly 1,700 new words in the English language, which is incredible. So in 1769, there was a jubilee in honor of Shakespeare that was actually thrown by Shakespearean actor David Garrick, and it was to celebrate his plays, his legacy, and his life. Unfortunately, a quintessential English fashion, the jubilee was postponed due to the rain. And then during the time of English expansion, particularly in the 1800s during uh, Victoria, Shakespeare not only was an icon of English heritage, but he now became a propaganda tool, which would continue. Shakespeare was also a propaganda tool during the World Wars as well. And they actually used Shakespeare as a way to subjugate their colonies. It was the 1800s. So Thomas, Thomas Carlyle in 1841 actually called him, and this is a quote by, by him, a real, marketable, tangible, useful possession. So essentially, you go to these places, you make people speak English, you make people wear English clothes, follow English religion, follow English traditions, and that tradition, of course, would be Shakespeare. But then you translate Shakespeare into their language as well, too. So it was a tool to gain people from the colonies onto the side of the English. But as the 1800s neared an end, something new started, and that would be film. So Shakespeare, instead of just stage plays, now found a new avenue. And the first place set to film was actually a short recording of a part from King John that was filmed in 1899, which I didn't think it was that far back. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is amazing. I think the first- I have to that down. Yeah. Um, I think that was around the same time that the Lumiere brothers were- posting their shorts as well maybe a little before that and then I think about 10 years before that was Louis Le Prince and the first film camera so this is all very brand new 1880s into the 1890s first film 
it was crazy time yeah wow yeah it's so cool and as i said yeah shakespeare was also used as a propaganda tool during the world war so you've got the 30s the 40s and the 50s in particular during the second world war and became even more uh, popular because it was a way for them to also raise english patriotism to fight for the war effort so to this day according to the guinness book of world records shakespeare holds the record as the most filmed author with over 400 film adaptations in a variety of different languages that makes me want to tear up (laughs) it's just beautiful it's just made it so accessible Mm -hmm. well i'll get into why in, in a minute uh, it's not just like, oh, Shakespeare, everyone loves Shakespeare. No, there's a reason to it. I'll get to that in just a minute. So with the love of Shakespeare actually reaching new generations, every generation, it's no surprise that they, so archaeologists did find the site of the old globe. Obviously, you don't want to build on it because that's ruining the history. So the new globe, which was debuted in 1997, was built not too far away on the Thames next to the site of the old globe. And what's interesting is it was also a royal opening by Queen Elizabeth II. So I believe the first globe was also a royal opening by Queen Elizabeth I. Pretty cool. (laughs) Casey's like, yay! (laughs) And so the new globe, based off the archaeological evidence and the records we still have, the new globe is literally structurally based off of the old globe. And where are you going? I was just going to get some more water. Okay, I'll wait. Do you have to wait? Well, no, I was just saying my next sentence, but I thought you'd enjoy it. Oh, I, oh, oh I'll listen. I'm <laughs> right here. <laughs> All right. I'm You're like, I'm really excited about all these different things. 400 film adaptations, Queen Elizabeth II. And I just wanted to also let you know, as, as you know, obviously Shakespeare's been translated into at least 100 different languages, including Klingon get out no not kidding Shakespeare apparently has been adapted to Klingon (laughs) so fascinating to me what yeah impressive oh someone must really love Shakespeare and Star Trek to combine both worlds like that well I mean if you're watching TNG you've got Shakespeare and Star Trek already talk about that's Picard come on I mean Picard loves Shakespeare Mm mm-hmm that's because Patrick Stewart is a Shakespearean actor. <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, he is. Love it. Okay, you can go get your water now. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for the, thanks for your permission. You're welcome. Love you. Weirdos. We're really goofy today. I love it. <laughs> so that was the influence of Shakespeare throughout history now we're talking about the influence of Shakespeare on theater itself so prior to the mid to late 1500s when Shakespearean or Renaissance theater started theater was mainly reserved for the wealthy as they could actually commission actors to travel to their lodgings and perform for them as entertainment around the same time or around the time of the beginning of the Renaissance theater because of Shakespeare this actually began a change because his writings would appeal to the masses with various themes of his plays sharing the life of the everyman instead of mirroring the nobility, which is also why there 
we, as we've talked about in the previous episodes, what people, the common folk would want to come and see the plays and would even skip work to come, come watch. So as we mentioned before, so the audience would actually participate in these plays, whether it was vocal towards different characters or even jumping on long stage next to the thespians and performing with them. Shakespeare is meant to be inclusive rather than just watched. So his writings have also inspired various changing changes in storytelling. So with Shakespeare, you have actually plots that are driven by the choices of the characters, which allows the characters to actually change through and progress through their journey, which can actually creates more of a more dynamic and character, a complex characters that everyone can actually relate to rather than just having some stock characters and they're not changing throughout the, the procession of the play. He also is credited as having invented cross genres, particularly mixing comedy and tragedy into one. And as I mentioned above, Shakespeare had a really big jump in the 1800s due to English expansion into the different colonies around the world. And in particular, in the UK and America, most productions were actually Shakespearean plays that were performed in practically everywhere in America. It's particularly in the frontier West, which I, I thought was really interesting. I didn't think the Wild West would be such a huge fan of Shakespeare, but apparently that was a thing. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of authors in those areas that were influenced by these plays and then therefore influenced by Shakespeare. He also had an influence on musical theater and how it's progressed over time. So before the 20th century, musicals would actually feature a number of uh, musicals would be talking with a musical number between dramatic scenes to break up the sections of the story. But as they've progressed, now they're almost full on musicals with songs throughout the whole thing. But adapting Shakespeare into modern musicals also allows the numbers, the musical numbers to be more integral into the plot. An example of this would be West Side Story because it's much more of a Romeo and Juliet style. It also is believed that Shakespeare is injured for as long as he has, because not only are the stories well told, but as we said, they've captured the complex emotions of humans, making them very adaptable to different cultures and situations as well. So an example of that would be The Merchant of Venice, which is about the struggles of a Jewish moneylender. It was used in the UK after the Holocaust as a theme of religious intolerance. And there was actually a recent production of this play by the Taiwanese Bangzi, I think that's how you pronounce it, theater company. And this was actually used to, uh, to highlight the justice and economic and materialism within the Taiwanese society. And then another major theme is actually family. So another example of that would be in 2014, there was a Zatari, I think is, a, is how you pronounce that, is a refugee camp in the Middle East, and the children put on a production of King Lear. And the, the point of doing King Lear in particular was that the, the children in these refugee camps, there was a lot of division, there was family issues, struggles, and it spoke to the people at the camp. What's interesting is that in turn, it highlighted the conditions in this refugee camp attracting international attention to the plight of the suffering children and their families by just performing this one Shakespeare play. So Shakespeare is relatable to everybody, everywhere, and various different cultures, situations, and for various reasons. It's so interesting. 
and moving really moved me that that last story about the refugee camp wow all right now we're gonna talk about the unfortunate death of shakespeare and mysterious death so william shakespeare's death is actually a mystery it really is we believe it occurred on april 23rd 1616 uh this is because his burial occurred on April 25th, 1616. So we think it took probably about two days to prepare the body for burial. So we're, we're really unsure of when he actually did pass away. His burial is located at the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon. And it's actually still there. Shakespeare's death was when he was 52 years old, which is actually a pretty darn good length of time for back then. Gotta remember, plague, uncleanliness, all that stuff were huge factors in your life expectancy. So 52, pretty pretty decent time for, for that era. He did die in his home in Stratford-upon-Avon and he had, he had left the theater business about six years. He, he retired, basically, six years before his death. So he was 46 when he retired. It's a pretty long time to be in there. And as I said, 52. Life expectancy at that time was somewhere originally between 20 to 35 years of age. Really young in, in our standards. But again, back then, hygiene didn't exist. So surrounding the death of William Shakespeare and how he died, that's also a mystery. There are tons of theories and speculations surrounding his death. And one of them is that he died after contracting a fever. Uh, Supposedly he became ill with fever after he met with some of his friends, which were included playwrights, Ben Johnson and Michael Drayton. And they had gone out drinking. And the, the vicar of the Holy Trinity Church, John Ward, at the time was the one who wrote the story. Uh, but this was several years after Shakespeare had passed away that he wrote down the, this account of his death. So many people don't believe this is the actual story as to how Shakespeare passed. Another theory that if, if you're going to lean towards a theory, more people lean towards this theory is that he had already been ill before he died. He just, it just progressed and progressed. And a lot of people believe this is true because a month before his death is when he had the will created. You didn't make a will at this time until you knew you were close to death or you were extremely ill and the chances are you might die. So if you're making a will a month before you actually do die, chances are you were already ill and you were heading towards death. So that, that's why this theory is more likely to be true than the other theory, per, according the theory according to John Ward. Shakespeare was pretty wealthy. He wasn't extremely rich. It's not like he was like noble family rich uh, when he died, but he ended up leaving his wealth and he ended up splitting it between his family and his friends. There were no memorials for his death when it originally occurred. The players and actors whom he had worked with did not 
attend or mourn his death that we know of, and neither did King James the Sixth of Scotland, first of England. Shakespeare had served King James during his career. As Casey said, this is during the Jacobean era, which is the era that King James basically ruled. And after his death, life basically continued as it always did when he died. What's interesting is that not long after Shakespeare's death, another playwright, William Camden, Camden had died. And things were the complete opposite for William Camden's death. It's unclear as to why, really. However, uh, there was a petition to have some, some type of memorial put up in Westminster Abbey for Shakespeare. And now there is actually a statue of him located in Westminster Abbey. All right, moving to the last section of this episode. I'm going to be answering the questions. Is William Shakespeare the true playwright and poet of the works of William Shakespeare? How could he have written such a quality, intricate poetry and play collection? Did someone work with Shakespeare? Or was Shakespeare's name simply used as a pen name or pseudonym to disguise the identity of the real author? So there is a lot of debate and conspiracy theories surrounding all these questions. And these, cons- these conspiracy theories exist about the authenticity of Shakespeare for some pretty valid reasons. We're going to be discussing each of the theories. So to begin with, the first theory we're going to discuss is the anti-Stratfordians theory. These theories bring up concerns that are typically brought up in regards to social class and education and the belief that the real Shakespeare was actually illiterate as was his parents, his wife, and his children. Shakespeare, as I discussed above, was the son of a glove maker. He did not receive any higher education. He did not attend a university. Only having attended a grammar school, he would not have possessed sufficient enough education to write to the level of prose in which he wrote. Only having attended grammar school, he would not have learned all the languages, level of grammar, nor would he he have learned the vast vocabulary that's actually found in Shakespeare's works, which contains some 3,000 words. Of what is left from Shakespeare's life, such as his business letters and other documents, these documents don't give any real indication of Shakespeare as an author. However, it does show Shakespeare acting as more of an investor and a collector of real estate. Also, there's no evidence that he was well-traveled or that he even left Stratford. There was not even a public mourning event held for him after his death, as Lauren had mentioned earlier. Among his possessions after his death, he did not even own anything that would pass him off or give any inkling that he was a playwright. There was no collections of books or plays. So these are the arguments made in this theory. However, to counter these points made, there are two other famous English playwrights at the time, Christopher Marlowe, whom I like to refer to by his nickname, Kit, and Ben Jonson. They too were from equally modest families, as was Shakespeare. And prominent Tudor officials responsible for ascertaining the authorships of plays They have even named Shakespeare as the true author. Also, as we discussed earlier, Shakespeare's contemporaries 
and his close friends actually paid a tribute to him in the years following his death, and as mentioned earlier, helped to compile and arrange for the publication of his works, the first folio. There are some modern-day anti-Strafordians who include the likes of actors Michael York, Derek Jacobi, Jeremy Irons, and former artistic director of London's Reconstructed Globe Theatre and author of a book speaking to the validity of the Baconian theory, Mark Rylance. And these actors were actually ones who performed the works of Shakespeare, yet they debate the validity of Shakespeare as an author. The next theory is the Sir Bacon, uh, Sir Francis Bacon theory. Bear with me. <laughs> this is one of the earliest theories. This was actually put forth in the mid 19th century. Sir Francis Bacon was a graduate of Cambridge and he was an highly accomplished individual being one of the creators of the scientific method. So fascinating. And he is thought of as a great philosopher who quickly rose through the ranks of the Tudor court only to become Lord Chancellor and a member of the Privy Court to the Queen. Bacons, as these theorists are called, believe that Bacon used the name and identity of Shakespeare in order to avoid this stigma associated with being a lowly playwright, as he felt driven to write plays under a secret identity because he felt compa compelled to actually criticize the royal and political establishment of which he was actually a member. These theorists are also under the belief that Sir Francis Bacon had provided clues for intelligent scholars to decipher his identity, clues like secret messages and ciphers. They even go so far as to reveal a larger secret that could shake the monarchy itself, that he was in fact Queen Elizabeth I's illegitimate son. That to me is insane. <laughs> I would like to see how they, you know, figure that all out from these supposed ciphers. So Mark Twain and his close friend, Helen Keller, actually are supporters of this theory. Moving on, the Oxfordian theory. These theorists believe that a man named Edward de Vere is Shakespeare. He was a poet, a dramatist, and the patrons of the arts himself. He was also the 17th Earl of Oxford. Now, given his prestige, wealth, position, he was a high-profile figure in the Tudor era. In fact, he was raised and educated in Elizabeth I's chief advisor's household, a name by the man are a man by the name of William Cecile. As a poet, De Vere had stopped publishing poetry under his own name. This happened shortly after the first known works that were attributed to Shakespeare had appeared. It is theorized that he used Shakespeare as a front to protect his position within society and that the annual royal annuity Devere received from the court he utilized to pay William Shakespeare for allowing him to use his identity to maintain anonymity. Devere, unlike Shakespeare, he was actually known to have traveled very exclusively in Europe and to have actually lived in Italy, which gave him this profound fascination and love of the Italian language and of the culture found there, which are commonly found throughout the works of Shakespeare, as we had discussed in our last podcast. 
Severe also loved and knew a lot about ancient history. He was friends with Authus Golden, who was a translator and whom translated Metamorphosis by Roman poet Ovid. And this translation played a direct part in influencing the works of Shakespeare. Devere was also fluent in French, Latin, Italian, Greek. He had a broad knowledge of law, jousting, and other royal pastimes. And he inherited an acting company from his father. And throughout his life, Devere always owned one or two companies at all times. For the major criticisms of this theory, the major one is that Devere had actually died in 1604, yet more than a dozen works of Shakespeare were actually published after his death in 1604. Uh, with people who support this theory, Sigmund Freud supports these claims for Devere along with Walt Whitman. Charles Beauclerk, who is a direct descendant of the Earl of Oxford, um, Devere, Charles still champions and fights for his ancestor to be recognized as a true author to this day. Then there's the Christopher Kit Marlowe Mar Marlovian theory. This theory first came about and was popularized in the 19th century. Kit himself was a celebrated playwright, poet, and he um, was also a translator in Elizabethan England and the Tudor period. He was even called the star of the Tudor age. Malovian theorists cite that there are way too many similarities in the writing styles of Marlowe and Shakespeare to be denied nor overlooked. Although there's been some modern analysis done that has called this argument into dispute in the recent years. Similar to Shakespeare, Kit was from a modest background. However, unlike Shakespeare, his natural intellect awarded him both a bachelor and master's degree from Cambridge University. It is believed that Kit served also as a spy for the Tudor court during his literary career. He also was known to support anti-religious groups and some considered him an atheist. Producing atheists ascertained would, of course, put him in a very precarious and dangerous position within Elizabeth's court. Marlowe was also a member of the notorious School of the Night, which was a group of men that included poets and scientists who studied and discussed within the group different theories on science, philosophy, religion. And this was centered around Sir Walter Riley, but this group also included George Chapman, Matthew Rodon, Thomas Harriet, and later Henry Percy, who was the Earl of Northumberland. This group was also referred to in 1592 as the School of Atheism. Shakespeare referred to the School of Night in his Love Labors Lost in Act 4, Scene 3, when he wrote, Black is the badge of hell, the hue of dungeons, and the school of the night. Now, there is a theory that this group of players, playwrights, scientists, thinkers may have collectively written these plays attributed to the Bard. As we discussed in our first podcast in discussing Elizabethan playwrights, it was more advantageous at the time to collaborate on plays. So this is not too far-fetched of a theory. In my research, it was written in England, Sir Walter Riley and the young Earl of Northumberland, Henry Percy, also born in 1564, led a group of intellectuals, a select band of advanced thinking noblemen, courtiers, and 
educated commoners, including mathematicians, astronomers, warriors who had explored the new world, geographers, philosophers, and poets. They formed the esoteric club nicknamed the School of Night, which meant that they secretly met to discuss these for this forbidden knowledge always behind closed doors. The Earl of Northumberland himself was eventually imprisoned in the Tower of London by King James I for almost 16 years on the false accusation of being involved in the gunpowder plot. And Sir Walter Riley was accused by King James of conspiring with the Spaniards. King James also persecuted them because he believed them he believed them to be under the vile heresy of atheism and also believed them to possess magical powers. Yeah, magical powers. Uh, so Kit died in 1593. His death is considered to be very mysterious and has led to many questions for some theorists throughout the centuries. However, a coroner's report has concluded that he really had been stabbed in a pub during an argument. Yet, there are theories that Kit's death was staged and faked. Why is this? Well, possibly to avoid persecution and arrest for his atheist works, or as a relocation effort to hide his role as Cecile's secret agent, and that Kit, after his staged death, had went on to pursue a new literary career, it's believed, and this was under the guise of William Shakespeare, whose work went on sale only two weeks after Marlowe's death. And... One of the last theories, this is one of my favorites. I think this would be amazing if this were to be true. The female authorship theory. So a writer in the 1930s named Gilbert Slater proposed a different theory as to the true authorships of the works of William Shakespeare. He believed that Shakespeare's works were not written by well-educated noble men, but had in fact been written by well-educated noble women as there were several female attributes to the subject matter and writing styles, as well as a long list of strong convention-breaking female characters that are found in the works of Shakespeare. There are two possible women that could have taken on this identity of William Shakespeare in efforts to get their works published. First being Mary Sidney, sister of Philip Sidney. Mary had received an advanced classical education. She spent time in Elizabeth's court, which exposed her in turn to the royal politics that played a key role in Shakespeare's work. She was an accomplished writer, and she'd in fact been recognized and praised for her translations of some religious works. Some wrote, she wrote some closet dramas as well, which are plays that are written for more private or small groups of friends, family, what have you. And Mary would have needed a male identity to be a successful playwright and poet back then, as women of the time were unable to partake in performance art and professional theater. Mary was also a well-known arts patron and ran a prominent literary saloon that included other poets such as Edmund Spenfer and Ben Johnson as members. She even provided funding to the company, the very theater company that was one of the first to produce Shakespeare's plays. The second female that is theorized that could have written Shakespeare's plays was Amelia Bassano. She was a London-born daughter of a Venetian merchant. She was one of the first English women to have published a volume of poetry. The Bassanos were also likely converted Jews, and in the works of Shakespeare, there was an inclusion of Jewish characters and themes. 
which were treated more positively than by many other authors of the day. The plays were also set in Italy. This could be explained by the true authorship of Amelia. Amelia was a very uncommon name in the Tudor era, yet this name was frequently used as a female character's name in Shakespeare's works, as well as variations of the last name Bassano. The Bassanos also visited Denmark, something rotten in the state of Denmark, Hamlet. <laughs> Amelia is also rumored to have been the mistress of one of the key patrons of Shakespeare's acting companies, which likely brought her into contact with the bard himself. Some even believe that she was Shakespeare's mistress. So some fun facts to finish off with. This debate has actually attracted the attention of two former U.S. Supreme Court justices, Sandra Day O'Connor and John Paul Stevens. The former even had signed a petition to put forth. He put forth this peti petition in regards to the true authorship of Shakespeare's work. There are also in ongoing investigations with the Folger Shakespeare Library called Project Dust Bunny, which examine microscopic fragments of hair and skin accumulation in the crevices and the gutters of 17th century books using DNA forensic. And I'm very interested to see what they can discover there. Shakespeare also signed his name differently throughout the years with various spellings and pronunciations of his last name. Some were, some were Shakespeare, Shaksbeard, or Shakespeare, but without the E at the end. It is also theorized that Sir Walter Riley or even Queen Elizabeth herself could have penned the works of Shakespeare. And that's all I have for you today. What are your thoughts, Melissa and Lauren, with these theories? I don't even know where to begin. I know. They're a little out there. Oh, yeah. Queen, I mean, first of all, there were the theories about Queen Elizabeth not being a, a girl, that it she died early, yes. and they dressed a boy up. <laughs> to being Queen Elizabeth for the rest of her life and now we have Queen Elizabeth supposedly writing all of Shakespeare's plays um yeah yay. very far-fetched the uh, the one that I believe to be the closest to like if I were to believe any of these theories it would be the Devere theory that's a pretty good one I like that one I do too or or Kit Marlowe I mean I think that they I mean or a combination of yeah, they both collaborated. I have a feeling that they that his works are more collaborative than we actually realize. Yeah, I mean, it could have been Devere and then just Shakespeare would be in uh, like a nom de plume. Exactly. But a man, a man named Shakespeare actually did exist. There are records of that. But no, there's just no, just have no evidence that, you know, he was actually a playwright himself. Right. So it's really... It's really fascinating. <laughs> so juicy. Delicious, even. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> to use my own words back at me. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, that it was really, this was really, this was a fun journey. I'm so glad that you, you had me on to take this journey with you. We're glad you wanted to come along. <laughs> I guess that does it. Real quick before the outro, 
Lauren, do you have anything to say about the conspiracy theories? Any that you lean towards? You find them both all that all of them crazy. They're conspiracy theories. Of course, they're insane. That doesn't mean they may not be true. They're it, it's just insane because it's a conspiracy theory. Yeah. Do you find any merit in any of them? I mean, do you have a favorite? I don't really have a favorite because I I just mm, yeah, I don't have a lot for that at the moment. You know, I'd have to literally sit down and go and reread everything about them. But you know, ju- just. The conspiracy theory that, you know, Shakespeare wasn't really Shakespeare in general. I mean, I can see how that would make sense to some and no sense to others, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think it would be badass if it was a female who wrote it this whole time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 it would. <laughs> kind of a very Anne, Bonnie, Mary read a situation before being found out that they were women. <laughs> all right let's uh do the outro real quick ready case i mean melissa <laughs> easy too all yeah. of us all righty well that'll do it for this episode of history explains it all thank you casey so much for joining us through this series we really appreciate it thank you i love you both so much fun we definitely plan on having her back. We'll have to figure out for what other series you want to do. Oh, there are so many. <laughs> Lawrence showed me a list of what you all have planned. And I am just dying to get on a lot of these. Oh, like like the seven page list of topics we have written down. Oh, yeah. It's extensive. You, your audience better stay tuned. It's <laughs> epic. Well, I guess with that said, we will hope to see you guys next week for another mini-sode as we continue to trek through history to everybody, all three of us. One, two. Explain it all. all. (laughs) (laughs) Should we try that one more time? (laughs) Ready? Ready? One, two, three. Explain Explain it all. all. (laughs) Bye. 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 Mwah.